better or worse, the relationship between science, film, and media has long been intertwined. We're here to dissect that relationship, turning it inside out for all to see. And throughout the years, one truth has revealed itself. You don't need good science to make a good movie. But it sure makes it better. Welcome to the Real Science Cast, the podcast where three highly qualified professionals pick a movie and then pick about the science. My name's Kenneth Smith, and my favorite reprint from the M21 set is Massacre Worm. <laughs> my name is Sean Cross, and, and my favorite new magic card is Maze Mind Tome. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> what? Nothing. This fucking, this fucking would be. He Pace, what's like your favorite I'm, card? I'm, I'm Michael Pace, and, and my favorite new card from the M21 set this summer is Vito, Thorn of the Dusk Rose. Oh, Vito's a hot boy. That's why. He's very hot. Vito's hot. Vito's hot. Basri Kett, uh, the new White Plains Walker, is also hot. That's Great. true. He's very attractive. And Fairy's also hot, too, though. But guys, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. As much as I would love this to be a podcast where we just talk about the sex appeal of art on magic cards... <laughs> This is not what the podcast is about. <laughs> it could be right now. Sean, <laughs> right now, we don't need we don't need a podcast to, to do that. So. What is this podcast about, Sean? It's this is a podcast about uh, movies where we watch the movies and then we talk about the science in the movies. What movie did we watch this week? And this week, Kenan, we watched the Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. That's right, we did. Pace, do you want to say something? Pace, say words. Uh, I I sure can. I mean, I think there are probably some things that people should know before they listen to this episode, uh, and probably even uh, a larger degree of things than normal before we get into the the topics of of this episode. So this is a show where we're going to break down some scientific minutia that occurred in this film, uh, and we're also going to say some curse words while we do that. We're going to spike sprinkle sprinkle those in uh, to, for for emphasis and. And impact and, lexicon. Uh, I I <laughs> I elected not to use the word lexicon this time, Sean, because variety in my vernacular is really important to me. Mm-hmm. So that's good. I variety in my that. lexicon is really important. To me. <laughs> um, I think it's also worth noting that today we're going to be talking about what can be a sensitive topic for a lot of people, which is the prevalence of racism in medicine. Um, and we're going to dig into how it was covered in this film and the problems that still exist systemically today. Yeah. And I think as a disclaimer, which I guess most people probably know, but if you don't, since people are just listening to our voices, we are three white guys. Um, so a lot of this is obviously from like super white us doing yeah, super white real uh, like fucking, white. From fucking Indiana. I mean, come Pace on. He's the whitest <laughs> so, person I've ever met in my life. Um, but so, you know, we did some research into these topics and obviously we're by no means experts in uh, as being on the receiving end of these things. But especially in light of all of the recent events, uh, I think it's important to keep the momentum going for the Black Lives Matter movement and discuss some of these things. So that's why we specifically did this movie. Yeah, for sure. And I think like one of the things that we want to try and do with this episode is not only lend credence to the things that Sean has said you know, surrounding the issue of Henrietta Lacks cells and their use in the medical field, um, but also just kind of unpack the, the systemic racism that is in medicine. Um, and keeping in mind that, like, when we do this, a lot of the reasons for why some things happen 
in medicine that are systemically racist are because of systemically racist other systems. Um, so it'll be <laughs> right. very, it's a very difficult ball to untangle, but we're going to try and provide um, a little bit of info on it and then also a little bit of reading if we can. Yeah. So I guess uh, we should get into the plot summary. You know what? Before we do the Whoa. plot summary, let me say who is in this movie because I normally do that, right? So this movie was a it was a 2017 film. Uh, it's starring Oprah Winfrey, mm-hmm. Rose Byrne. So Oprah Winfrey plays Deborah Lax, who is one of the main characters, and she is the daughter of Henrietta Lax. Then there's Renee Elise goldsberry she plays <laughs> is it elise sean you have the hardest time pronouncing the most basic words and i don't understand it <laughs> i like, legit <laughs> think of dyslexic <laughs> like, you look, look at look at rachel and be like hmm rachel, rachel. Oh, this one says rachel <laughs> rachel this one says rachel got it <laughs> i think it's elise right renee elise goldsberry yeah no you know okay she plays henrietta lax uh then there's rocky carroll as sunny lax one of the brothers courtney b vance as Sir Lord Keaton Kester Colefield, who is a con artist in the yep. movie. <laughs> uh, and then there's Reg E. Kathy, who plays um, Sicaria Lax. Yep, Sicaria Lax. Yes, there was their, their brother who was imprisoned for a while. It's rough that every time I heard his name, I could just th- <laughs> kept thinking of Daenerys saying Dracarys. I don't know why, <laughs> but it really reminded me of that. I was like, Dracarys? That's huh? because Game of Thrones has rotted all of our brains. It has. It really has. Uh, so those are the people of the movie. This movie came out in 2017. It's available on HBO Max if you have HBO. Uh, it's an HBO movie. Um, spoiler alert, I recommend that you watch it. Yeah, I actually say that you should watch it. You should definitely watch mm-hmm. it. This is a story yeah, that mm-hmm. you should be aware of for a lot of reasons. And also because, like, quite honestly, we're not going to spend too much time talking about the plot. It's a very st- simple and straightforward plot that tells a really good story that's important. So, um, you know, we're not, I'm not going to tell you to try and maintain a level of an attention span that I can't maintain and read the book, but you should definitely watch this hour and a half movie and get the idea of what's happening here. Get it. Yep. No one needs to read anymore. It's 2017. I, We're Sean, done with reading. Guys, Sean's in, you mean it's Sean's 2020? in academia. Did I say 2017? Fuck. <laughs> you did. <laughs> I wish. No. <laughs> no, no, no. We'd all still be in grad school. No. <laughs> oh, that's true. Damn. That's true. All right, no, Sean's be- basically still in grad school. Oh, yeah, not. Sean never left. Sean, no, I, I hate reading, is in academia still. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> All right. Let's Guys, roll. let's get into the... What? Let's, let's roll. Let's roll. All right, let's let me just close tight. my... <laughs> Uh, list of all the magic cards from <laughs> Corset 2021, and then we can nice, go nice, and get nice, on with the nice. plot of the movie. All right, I'll crawl back up out of the hole where I was looking up every movie that Renee Elise Goldsberry's been in. She was in an episode of Altered Carbon. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. That was a wild show. I didn't watch I, it. What a wild show. I've it never seems seen like it. Ghost in the Shell. That's actually pretty accurate. Which I liked Ghost in the Shell, so maybe I'd like it. But anyways, guys, the plot. We got to do the plot. And guess what? I did the plot last time. So one of you two is doing the plot, which I don't want. Kind of lucked out because this one's pretty easy to do. I don't like Kenan. I don't, but I hate talking. That's why I have a podcast. You love talking so much. Yeah, Kenan, don't fucking lie to us. You guys ready? Let's do this. Yes. Oh well, that's that's not a bad roll. All right, Kenan, what'd you get? All right, I got a twelve. Pace. I got a seven. Damn. All right, I'm gonna roll my d6. Do it. I rolled a two. That's a market improvement over nice. one. Three I guess. whole minutes. That you're, is. Not even, you're not even going to need it. 
I'm not even going to need the three minutes. You know what? All right. So uh, very quickly, this movie is based on the book by uh, Rebecca Sklute. I believe I said her last name correctly. Um, yes. And sure. that character is also portrayed or that the writer is also portrayed in the movie. Um, so in this, Rebecca Sklute and Deborah Lacks uh, get together and they travel around the country, meet with the folks at John Hopkins, John Hopkins, uh, meet with a lot of Lax family, uh, and try and understand who Henrietta Lax was as a person so that they can tell that side of the story. Um, while also basically trying to publicize this person, um, and how they were kind of preyed upon by the medical field during their time. Um, and in doing so, trying to sort of boost their voice and then boost the voice of the cry for system about systemic racism. Uh, and medicine. And one of the nice things that came out of this as well is that Rebecca, along with the Lax family, um, actually helped found the Henrietta Lax Foundation. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, and the movie, yeah, that's it. That's the whole plot, actually. And it's really good. Nice. You did that in one minute. Nice. I feel good. Thank you, Kenan. I want to thank the Academy and also this movie for having a very straightforward plot. Yeah, like yeah seriously uh, honestly for the scope of this podcast for the listeners we're not going to get into all the details about like the characters for the plot because it's something that one it's not going to come across the same hearing it from us like you're better off watching the movie um but two we really just want the summary of the foundation of what it's talking about so uh, but it's a good movie we all watched it i highly recommend that you watch it um i agree you absolutely should watch it yes all right what's the next thing do we do disclaimers is that is that it no, we did that I already. Think it's ratings. Oh, okay. Let's do the ratings. For my first rating, I want to rate. <laughs> no, no, no. Wait, wait, about... wait, wait, wait. I just remembered. Oh, we actually talk about the science now. Okay. Well, let's talk about HeLa cells first. I want to know what those bad boys are. Okay. Yeah. So again, obviously, we're going to approach this movie a little differently because it's not a science movie, but it is talking about some topics that are like extremely important to current biomedical research, mm-hmm. and that's HeLa cells. So let's talk about what HeLa cells are. All right, hit me. They are the first established cell line, um, and they were established in 1951. They are derived from cervical cancer cells from Henrietta Lacks, okay? Mm -hmm. So, Kenan, you might be wondering, and Pace, what is a cell line? I know you guys know, but the listeners might not know. Sean, what's a cell line? Sean, what is an immortalized cell line? Right, so an immortalized cell line are basically cells, that, in this case, they're human cells, but they're cells that are derived from human tissue that are able to just live independent of the body. So they mm-hmm. live in a container with some like nutrient, like bath basically floating on top of them, and they just divide and live there. And that is how these cells work. The reason that is, one, super important is because it gives scientists a way to study something over a decent amount of time so these cells are still used today um, and it's 2020 and these cells were taken in 1951 there obviously might be some changes over time but largely you're using the same type of cells that were used in previous studies so you have the ability to now compare results from something 30 years in the past and have a pretty good benchmark of like the parameters of the experiment Mm -hmm. So that's one thing with a cell line. The second thing is that it allows you to study something with human cells, not in the body, which I know sounds like, I don't know, to me, it sounds like, oh, sure, whatever, we do this all the time. Just for the listeners, we have cell lines of mice and humans and tons of different cell lines now. Mm -hmm. 
but before this was like a brand new concept of something that actually worked. So primary cells where you just take cells from someone and put them in a dish, they normally don't last very long, maybe like a few days to a week and they don't behave normally um, because a lot of human cells aren't actually dividing all the time. Right. Like the cells in your eye, for example, they're just sitting there functioning as eye cells helping you see. They're not supposed to be dividing. They've reached a state that is known as senescence in that they have naturally stopped dividing. Exactly. So if you took those cells and you put them in a plate and they don't divide, then they'll eventually just die because Mm -hmm. they're in like a way harsher environment outside of the body. So... This was like very unique in the sense that these cells continuously divided all the time because they're from tumor cells and they keep them going. As far as like a historical perspective, like what what's an example of what these cells have been used for? They've been used for like literally everything. I think if you go into any biomedical lab now, there's a stock of frozen HeLa cells somewhere Yep. because people just have HeLa cells because they were, they were given to everyone all over the place. They were used because they essentially opened up an entire new like tool of experimentation for anybody doing scientific research. Yeah. And like Um, Sean was saying, because so many people have used them, you can do experiments in HeLa cells that may be completely unrelated to experiments that were done, you know, forever ago or will be done in the future. But if there is a small amount of relation in the experiment that you're doing and that other people are doing, that's another piece that ties it back. So like we saw this happen in HeLa cells and another person go, oh, under this context, we saw this happen in HeLa cells. Right. So it just offered like one, it was a way also for people to study cancer because they had cells from a tumor that just kept growing. So you could measure them, you could look at them, you could see what they were doing, you could try and figure out like, why are these cells dividing all the time, but other cells aren't. Um, So HeLa cells are actually involved in the identification of like, what genes are required to keep cells living like this. And so looking at HeLa cells actually led to the generation of other cell lines because people realized like, if we can just turn these genes on and these genes off, we can get cells to keep growing like this. Um, but as far as like, you know, practical medical applications, uh, one thing that they were used for is they were used to test the first polio vaccine. Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, if you're going to test something in people, what, you know, it's way better to test it in cells first because the cells are human cells. They should behave similar enough to how a human cell would behave. So they test the vaccine, see if it works. And, you know, that's one thing they, they sent the cells into space see how they divided in a zero gravity condition. They've used them for numerous cancer studies. They're basically used for like anything that you could use cells for. People did it with HeLa cells first. Yep. Yep. So it's a good thing that they got her permission to use these, right? Ooh, (laughs) man. This could have been such a a good story if this was, if they were actually donated. Yeah. A hundred percent instead of taken from her. But We should get into that. We should talk about why it's a problem and what happened because of it, for sure. Right. And again, I want before we talk about that, I just want to say all of these descriptions of what HeLa cells are used for. This is to enlighten you as to the implications of like what the cell line allowed scientists to do, not in any way to justify the taking of these cells from someone. It's I'm not trying to say like all these amazing things happen, so it's okay. That's not what we're saying. We're just giving you the context of like what the cells are used for. Yeah, hundred percent. All right, Kenan, let's get into some of the nitty gritty here. Hell yeah! And pace. 
Sorry, Pace. I'm Kenan's videos up on my screen, so I see him. Hey, that's okay. I'm with you. It's because I'm, I'm ready. wild, specifically. That is exactly why. <laughs> Let's talk about the common rule first. So as Sean mentioned, these cells were taken from Henrietta Lacks. She went in for a procedure in order to have her cancer removed and be treated for cancer. Uh, and then they were cultivated and used for all of these experiments. Uh, her name was buried effectively. They were called them HeLa cells and they referred to the patient that they took them from as Helen Lane. Um, and no notification was given to her family about what they were being used for. Um, and then a whole slew of other things happened uh, with them that we'll talk about as well. But one of the first things that happened after this became, you know, became publicized and obviously people look back at it and go, ooh, this is a problem, uh, was the establishment of what's known as the common rule. So this was def- uh, established in 1981, and it defines the regulatory and oversight ethical requirements for biomedical research that regard human subjects or samples. Um, and there are a main couple of tenets that are uh, important for the common rule, uh, and that's that they established requirements for assuring compliance by research institutions, uh, which includes not only government institutions, but also uh, institutions like UF, uh, which ha- is a uh, large research school. Uh, requirements for researchers obtaining and documenting informed consent, um, which is very important because the informed part of that ensures that the patient knows what's going to happen to them or to their tissue uh, and understands it rather than just being told it. Uh, and then it also establishes requirements for instit- for the Institutional Review Board, which is known as the IRB membership. Uh, how it functions, how their operations work, uh, how they review research, and how they keep all of their records of any human tissue taken from any experiment from anyone. Right. And so prior to 1981, these things didn't exist. So what the doctor did to Henrietta Lacks was not like legally wrong. Like he was allowed to take the cells. Now, obviously, ethically, this was a big problem, which is why the common rule was made partially Mm -hmm. because of this case. Um, But yeah, so they really sort of got to the point where people were like, hey, you can't just take our like tissue from our body and then use it for God knows what and eventually profit off of it, too. They're um, selling it. They're selling it. Right. <laughs> they're slapping it on Lunchbox. They're selling it. So that was another big thing with this case is that these cells were eventually commercialized. So someone's actually profiting off of the sale of these cells, which like the family doesn't profit off of it. And they never consented to give the cells in the first place. So you can see how that's a pretty big ethical dilemma. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Hey, while we're discussing some of the laws that surround this, uh, we should talk about what happened in 2013 after the publication of the immortal immortal life of Henrietta Lacks with the NIH and trying to publish the HeLa genome sequence in 2013, especially around like that decade and like the early 2000s human genome sequencing and just the capability to sequence large amounts of DNA started becoming like the new future of science. And people have been studying this cell line for the past like 40 years you know, or 60 years or something. So these, uh, this group of researchers decided they were like, Hey, we'll sequence the entire HeLa cell genome. Meaning like, we'll know every single base pair sequence of DNA for the entire thing. Um, but obviously when researchers, so I don't know if most people know this, but for most researchers, especially when you're working in an academic institution, you are required if you're under in the US, if you're under like NIH funding or any sort of governmental funding, 
uh, to make your findings publicly accessible in the form of like a journal article. So if you sequence this, you need to publish the sequence so that people can access it. That is like part of the agreement to help further everyone's research, right? Which is in general a good principle. But when it comes down to the cell line, there was already so much so many issues involving informed consent. And since the patient, the family had never consented to this, when the author set out to sequence the genome for the HeLa cells, they actually, you know, were, I don't know exactly how it went down, but the family was notified and there were discussions with the family where the family, uh, the Lax family just said like, you can't just publish the sequence for this. So the authors actually waited to release their paper until them in accordance with the family and I'm sure some legal team came up with the HeLa genome data usage agreement. And that was in 2013. And what this does is basically, instead of just making the sequence publicly available for anyone to look up on the internet, um, you have to apply to get the sequence and they give it out to anybody who's using it for medical research or anything like that. But you need to submit a request form with your intentions of what you're going to do with this. Because if you think about it, you know, while the DNA has probably gone through a lot of mutations over the past, you know, 80 years or something like that, most of that DNA is going to be very similar to the family's DNA. And, there's a huge privacy issue with people getting their DNA sequenced and making that shit publicly available for everyone to know what your sequences are. Um, so they just decided to like, it's going to be used, but only for medical research. So they set up this law, which mm-hmm. I think was great that they actually did this before they published the paper. Yeah. yeah and it actually yeah. led to the wax family being involved in a lot of the oversight for that. Like you, like you were saying, like, they, they review most of the applications, and for a lot of research that's going to involve HeLa cells, they have a little bit of oversight uh, with the NIH uh, on how that stuff is used. Yeah, which is really great. Um, Imagine I think that. One of the big points that this movie tries to stress, which I really like that they do this, is, you know, the Lax family does not have a problem necessarily with these cells being used. They just wish that they were informed in the beginning about what was going to happen. So for the most part, they're not, the family is not trying to get people to stop using HeLa cells. They're just trying to have some oversight over what's, what's happening so that they know, because I think that's a pretty reasonable request. Mm -hmm. Agree. Absolutely. Do we guys, do we want to on our science comedy podcast, unpack the history of racism in medicine i think it's a (laughs) well okay okay before before we do i i think there are some important disclaimers to say i know we already did the show disclaimers but there are disclaimers about this about talking about that anyway so the instance of henrietta Lacks was just like one example of this Mm -hmm. right um there are probably too many instances to count of of this and this is by no means an all-inclusive list of what we're going to be talking about in this in this topic. Yeah, you know, this I think that I think what we're going to point out today are just some things that we have we as as like white individuals have found to be particularly despicable or shocking, shocking you right. know, uh, his, his historic events um, that we think were are worth mentioning. But obviously, this is a daily and systemic issue that 
that manifests itself in a lot of unique ways. Right. And some of these issues were actually referenced in the the film itself. Um, yeah. Correct. Yeah. Correct. It just sort of sets the stage of why there is this distrust between the family, like in addition to the fact that they just took cells without Ugh, permission, yeah. there's like yeah. an entire history of doctors taking advantage of people of color. So that's why yeah. that's Abs- there's reasons for distrust. Yep. And yeah. Pace is going to get into it. Let's do it. Well, and, and it's just it's it's one of the primary reasons why there is this like the, the, there is very good reason for the for the distrust that black Americans have in, in the U.S. healthcare system. So. Um, and, and also this is, it, it's led to a lot of different things like a mortality differential and health, other, other health differentials between, you know, between black and white Americans and other minorities. Um, so one of the most despicable events, which is, which is referenced a lot, uh, and with good reason is the Tuskegee experiment. Mm-hmm. So, uh, this was a 40 year experiment that was conducted by the U S public health service. And it followed 600 low income black men in Tuskegee, Alabama. Uh, now 400 of these men had syphilis and, uh, the, the so-called like purpose of this ex- uh, experiment was to better understand the disease, how it progresses. Um, and, Unfortunately, throughout the entire progression of this experiment over 40 years, these men were lied to about the study, provided sham treatments, um, and a lot of them needlessly passed on the disease to other family members. People suffered. People died. Um, And there was a very interesting article that I was able to find written by uh, a a historian at Harvard, uh, Alan Brandt, who described the situation as... The Tuskegee experiment revealed more about the pathology of racism in the U.S. than it actually did syphilis itself, because even at the time in which this study was done, there was a lot already known about about syphilis and, and how the, the the etiology of the disease, how it how it progresses. Um, in 1972, the study was publicized and immediately halted. Uh, but you know, even to this day, it's 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 regularly cited as one of the reasons why Black Americans have a a well-meaning distrust of. Of, of the healthcare system and why they might not think that they are receiving adequate care and fair care uh, for their health problems. And this has led to a lot of problems, uh, such as just improving, uh, you know, the pre- preventative healthcare landscape for black Americans, uh, among other things. And so it's, it's just, it's just one example. Yeah. When you have like, you know, when we say history, this is like a fairly recent history. Like the seventies are not yeah. that long ago. Yeah. Like people in the seventies are alive today, you know? Um, so like when you have stuff like this, you know, even though people may say like, you know, Oh, I'm a doctor. I'm not racist. I'm not going to do something like this. You're like, yeah, like, of course that's great that you wouldn't think to do something like this, but the distrust has been seated already. So it it's like there yeah. needs to be more effort to even further educate the public and overcome these things because there's a really, honestly, it's understandable why people are distrusting of the doctors. I'm actually kind of a, it's interesting when you, when you read all this stuff, then you watch this movie, you're like the Lax family has been extremely understanding about this entire yeah. situation. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Sean, yeah. you also bring up another good point about like uh, how um, people who work in the healthcare, people who work in science, kind of approach these types of things because there's one thing 
it's it's one thing to say I'm not racist and one thing to like try and apply that interpersonally while working in healthcare. But it's also a completely other thing to try and engage with the systems in which you work and try and disentangle systematic racism from those systems. Um, it's one of the things why there is a large debate over people participating in other systems that are very racially prejudiced or very racially um, uh, have a large amount of racial discrimination. Um, and like, what's your role in that? Like by participating, are you making it worse? If you're not, what are you doing to fix it? Like, and that's a much larger conversation. And I think it's one of the reasons that, you know, we're at the point now where it's, it it never was, but it's absolutely not enough now to say like, oh, we're not a racist healthcare system. It's like, well, okay, but everything is racist all around us. So like, what are you doing to fix that? Right, exactly. It's not about people's intentions. It's about the the actual statistics, right? Like, well, the impact. Of, yeah. The yeah, impact. It's the impact of you can, maybe your day to day actions would not be considered racist, but that doesn't mean that the system is not biased. Right. So, and I think we I have think a pa- couple of examples of that. Yeah. I was just going to say that. Hey. Pace. <laughs> so one of the interesting topics that I think is worth mentioning in regards to a disparity between the treatment of, uh, of black and white Americans in the U.S. health healthcare system is regarding pain and pain recognition mm. and pain treatment, uh, and so there have been a number of studies that have supported these uh, this phenomenon in particular. Uh, an example of such was conducted in 2012 when there were some pediatricians uh, that basically were looking for implicit racial biases in teenagers after surgery. And so what they did was to look for any implicit bias towards uh, a more higher likelihood of giving uh, of giving white patients versus black patients prescription pain meds. And, and what they found is that, you know, of all the investigators that they tracked here, there, were, there, was, a, there was a scale, a spectrum of, of bias. Uh, and, and as the preference for giving white Americans and white, these white teenage Americans pain medicine post-surgery, the likelihood of giving black Americans the same pain meds decreased. Um, And so this is just one example. There was a a meta-analysis, which is essentially just a congregation, an aggregation of a lot of different similar studies that found that overall, black patients are 22% less likely than white ones to receive pain medication. The weird part of it is how uh, a result of a result of this has manifested in a in a wild way. So um, obviously, a lot of these pain med- medications are opioids, right? They're op- they're opioid right, medications, right. and and so as of 2018, the rate at which white patients have overdosed and died due to opiate addiction is six times higher than that of Black Americans. Um, and I would be shocked if it wasn't at least correlated to an increased rate of prescription of these pain meds in white Americans versus blacks. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that is how a lot of people that start with pain, like opioid addiction problems, uh, generally they get it prescribed and then they develop an addiction and then they acquire it through other methods or continuously through prescriptions. But yeah, that's generally the gate. Yeah. I mean, the gateway for people getting addicted is they get it prescribed to them. Yep, that's yep. pretty wild. I, I, I think it's also worth worth noting that there was a similar sort of disparity among his, uh, his Hispanic patients. 
Wow. So wow. Boy, how this is like <laughs> Pace. This is the like the perfect terrible topic to pick because not only did you un- are you are we looking at a racial bias in medicine prescription, we're also looking at a racial bias and prescription of medicine that is overprescribed and killing people. So it's like yeah, yeah, just yeah. a lose 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 scenario. It's, because... it's it's such a multifaceted shit show. Yeah, isn't it? it's so uh, so bad. And to stay on topic of systemic racism, Lord knows our country has a very complicated history with over introducing drugs into the populace as well. Oh, yeah. That too. That too. <sighs> All right. Are you ready for some more thick, heavy discussion? Yeah, dude. I'm, it's so thick. All right, cool. As long as it's thick with two Cs. Thick with two Cs and crying with two Cs. Um, okay. So one thing <laughs> I, I wanted to talk about a little bit more about generalized racism in medicine. I mean, we've talked about like a couple of examples. I want to give a couple more. Um, I think it's very easy to give like quick bullets um, with citations. One of the things that should be considered is that in general, there's a, a wide disparity between uh, black patients and other patients. And the easiest way to describe this is between black patients and white patients. Um, mm-hmm. Just for a couple of quick fire ones, black people are more likely to die th- uh, uh, to die from cancer than white people are under systems of care. Um, they're more likely to suffer from chronic pain, diabetes, and depression. Pace talked a little bit about that um, earlier. Pain is treated differently uh, when it's a black patient versus a white patient. Uh, black mothers are three to four times more likely to die due to pregnancy-related causes than white women. Uh, and in fact, in a study that was carried out in New York City over uh, a period of time, 2018 to 2012, that showed that actually when you looked at wealthy, educated black women who were pregnant, they actually had worse pregnancy outcomes than white women with less income and fewer resources. Yeah, exactly, Ken. And, and one thing that I think is worth mentioning, you you talk about things such as diabetes that are more prevalent in, in, in black Americans. And I think that's, you know, especially type 2 di- diabetes has risk factors that obviously go beyond, you know, the healthcare system. Obviously, they're not, black Americans don't get as comprehensive of preventative health care. But then when you also take into account a lack of ex- lack of access to healthier food and other resources that can they can put themselves in a better position to avoid some of those risk factors for type 2 diabetes that obviously comes into play here too. It's, you know, it goes beyond just the healthcare system. Yeah. You're going back to the problem that we're talking about here that like the systemic racism that's inherent to the medical field is tied very closely into the inherent racism in the economy um, or in the job market or any of those other things. So, wow, it's all linked. Wow. It's like, it's like all the systems are bad. We talked wow. about that. <laughs> so uh, a couple other things here too. So one thing to keep in mind that black children in general in many studies have reported higher levels of stress. So there are several psychologists who study chronic stress uh, in the context of long-term discrimination. And there's an important neurotransmitter that Pace can talk a little bit more about called cortisol uh, that is disrupted mm. during terms of long-term stress. Uh, and this can cause things like fatigue as well as a few, uh, a whole slew of other problems. And then something that's very, very important for our current time uh, is that during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, statistics, statistics have been showing that black Amer- Americans that black Americans have been dying at roughly 2.4 times the rate of white Americans. Um, and this goes back to a lot of things, right? Like Pace has talk, talked about uh, access to health care, uh, the environments in which uh, black people are subjected to versus white people. And it's just a whole thing. And that is exacerbated by this pre-existing problems in medicine. This is an opening for Pace. He looks like he's doing research. I'm, 
I'm depressed. Sorry, guys. This is depressing me. Hey, that's okay. Um, the 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 uh, the cure for depression is anger, and then you try and help fix the problem. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Well, you did you did talk about. Um, we can talk about some signs of this really quickly with with cortisol disruption and and fatigue. So like. So whenever the body enters a stressful situation, it does naturally release cortisol, which is a, a good thing in a transient or temporary manner, right? It activates the body's flight or fight or flight response and allows you to react to difficult situations. Um, but the problem is that whenever you have the this our like natural stress response kind of go wild and and run off uninhibited, and you have your brain is being flooded with cortisol, uh, it can have really detrimental long-term effects upon the body, like like weight gain, uh, digestive problems, anxiety, depression, some things you mentioned, um, which again puts people at risk for for other for for other comorbidities, other other health problems that will happen in conjunction with this. And so, shocker, you know, whenever you live in a you know, health and uh, in a world of these health and economic disparities, you know, that black Americans live with every day, it's not surprising that you have chronic levels of stress that lead to other health issues, which then make this a cyclical problem. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's very much like, there's like a biological reason why like long-term stress is actually like bad for you like i'm sure people hear all the time they're like oh it's not good to be stressed all the time but like the reason is like biological there's a biological basis for it like there are actual things that happen to your body if you are constantly stressed out all the time um which i think like you know a lot of people know hey it's not good to be stressed but this is the reason why like cortisol is one facet of it but there's actual physiological manifestations of stress. Yeah. And this type of thing kind of like really, I hope sheds light on the fact that like we talk about all the time about how people's life's experiences are different. I mean, with this information, it should be fairly obvious that if you're a black person living in a society that experiences systemic racism, you're probably going to be more stressed out than someone who benefits from privilege in that same society. Yeah. So the other thing that I want to talk about, this kind of leads us into uh, another topic, and I'm going to give an example of this. But one of the things that comes up a lot, especially in the context of research and obviously in the context of healthcare, is that how we talk about racism in each of these systems and how we teach about it. So for a very Mm -hmm. long time and more often than not, we're told that race is a biological factor in health outcomes when in reality, more often than not, the issue is racism. So there are communities – groups of people who can experience diseases differently than other groups of people. But more often than not, when you're looking at the demographics for different disease states, things like uh, diabetes, like Pace mentioned, it's not actually an issue with that person being of a specific race, except under the context of a racial, uh, racially discriminating system. Um, So Mm. there was an interesting piece that was published in 2019 in the American Academy of Pediatrics that's called The Impact of Racism on Child and Adolescent Health that you guys should take a look at if you feel so inclined to read something a little bit more scientifically uh, heavy um, that kind of talks about this and discusses that often we're told that we should be looking at race as a triggering point for for a, a type of outcome or for a type of disease when in reality it's just how that person is treated at the system that they're in. And the example that I want to give of this, which uh, I'll 
we'll post a link to the article that I pulled a lot of this information from, uh, both on Twitter and we can talk about it at the end. But it refers to this uh, paper that was published in the Canadian Journal of Respiratory Therapy written by Lundy Braun. Um, and it talks about a, an example in which there are medical pra- uh, practices past and present that are still racist or they're pro- approached from a racial discriminatory standpoint. Uh, and the example given is for uh, in, in this article is for a piece of equipment known as the spirometer. So the spirometer is a tool that allows you to measure lung capacity and the the amount of time it takes to exhale after a deep breath. So you, the person breathes into it. It's got a mouthpiece. It kind of looks like a breathalyzer. Oh, it's like that thing they give you after surgery, right? Yeah, exactly. They give it to you after surgery, and it's supposed to like test your healing, and then you can get an incentive spirometer that's like supposed to assist in the healing and like help your lungs re-expand. It's exactly that. So these things were used, have been used for quite a while, uh, and there was a specific period of interest in developing a modern spirometer in the 1840s. And this is, from what I remember, this is like mostly surrounding the, this idea of like trying to determine who's fit for active duty um, in police forces and armed forces and things like that. During the time, this was like an international interest. And in North America, very specifically, it was argued that different corrective factors, quote unquote, should be applied to how the data is interpreted from patient to patient. And one of those corrective factors is the fact, and the spirometer is still used uh, on some occasions with this corrective factor, one of those depends on race. So the reason this happened is because in the 1840s, there was a plantation physician known as Samuel Cartwright, who actually cites... Thomas Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia in which Jefferson stipulates only in like a philosophical argument, baseless speculation, that black people actually have a smaller lung capacity. And so this is why Samuel Cartwright said, well, because of this, we should do our calculations differently for black people because their lungs are smaller. And Jefferson was making this (laughs) argument in order to justify the position of slaves in the in our young nation. So basically saying because black people have smaller lungs, they're really only fit for field work. And that's why there is a race button to do the calculations on a spirometer. Oh, my God. So here's an example of medical practices that are racist. And there's a good, really good point that's made in this article. Um, There is a misleading tendency because of these deposit that race plays such a role in some medical outcomes or cases when, in fact, the practices themselves can lead to those worse outcomes. Um, And it's very specifically said that these types of practices can lead to those outcomes. And then people look back at it and they go, oh, well, black people or Hispanic people are more prone to X, Y or Z because of it. That's so rough. Yeah. It's also like. Like, you could see how, as, like, a modern-day scientist, when, like, someone tells you, oh, there's a di- there's a difference in a certain sort of physiological performance based on race, like, people have different genetic backgrounds because of their ethnicity. So there, there's, like, part of you where you could think, like, oh, I could see how, how what, someone would believe this, right? But then when you actually uncover the reasoning for everything, you're like, no, it's just, com- one, it's completely anecdotal, Two, that's not actually founded in anything real. And three, it's literally just racist as shit. Like, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and I mean, this is like, you're talking about something that's like been addressed in some cases and then obviously still hasn't been addressed in the medical field to any great degree. But like, this is the same argument that people made for phrenology, right? Like, for, oh, dis- for discussing yeah. like why people are more prone to criminal acts. 
Um, and some of yeah. the things that are using the same types of speculation or types of um, justification are still being used in medicine, which is a big problem. Yeah, obviously. 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 You, when we say obviously, it's actually, I guess, not that obvious because it's still happening. Yeah, but. <laughs> yeah, well, I think like it's it's obvious when you actually take the time to look and read about it. and To figure out the foundation. And also right? like keeping in mind, like, and we talked about this too, it's a perspective thing. Like we're three white people and these are things that like, even now we're obviously still learning about these types of things and going, what the fuck? And there have been people, especially black people, who have for a long time been going like, yeah, I know. We've been talking about this for years. Yeah. So, Right. Like, that's Kenan, I'm glad you gave this example because it's like a perfect example of how a systemic point of racism can continuously do something, even though the person themselves. So, like, if you say you have a, a new student, right, a med student, and they're learning about doing this lung test and they're. I don't know, have a patient that's black and someone says, oh, make sure you account for the difference in lung function because there's a racial difference in lung function. They might be like, oh, okay. Yeah. I'll do that. No problem. Yeah. Because they've been told that that's what they should be doing based on some sort of medical thing. And they would have no idea, which, you know, I would have not known unless Ken looked this up, that that entire thing was based on some like racist premise that is not actually founded in science whatsoever. Yeah. So I think the well, moral of the story that we're really trying to get to, which is one of the reasons why we did this episode specifically, is that I think it's the first step, especially if you're like us and you're white guys with doctorate degrees, try and learn as much as you can about the shit that you don't know. Yeah. Because honestly, I didn't know anything about this, which is why we picked this movie. We were like, let's look into this. Let's learn about it. Because, you know, that's that's where everything starts. I think the other thing to keep in mind, too, is that like... One of the reasons that this is such an uphill battle and has been such an uphill battle for a long time is that because things are systemic, you have people who are in positions of power, people who like make these decisions for what gets taught or what's get put in, what gets put in the books or how things are considered, what calculations are done. And for a long time, those people have been white. And even in the cases in which those people aren't directly racist, a lot of times those people are critical to change because for whatever reason, whenever they hear that something is racist, they take it as a as like a judgment on themselves, right? So like they're looking at it and they're like, well, I'm in charge of this thing and they're saying that this thing is racist, but, so, but I'm not racist, so it can't be. And I think the thing that all of us need, who are in these types of positions need to unlearn is that it is like – it's okay to be wrong about something and it's okay to find out that something's bad and change. You know what I mean? And especially if you're being told that that thing is better for everyone else, especially people who are marginalized for you to change. Right. Exactly. It's really just like trying to not be defensive and trying to actually listen to a different perspective, uh, which is tough, but it's necessary. Mm -hmm. So I think we should talk about something a little bit more upbeat for the last part of this discussion. Yes, please. I think we should. Uh, you guys want to talk about the Henrietta Lacks Foundation and what they're doing? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Kind of hit me, Pace. You do it. Well, so the Henrietta Lacks Foundation uh, was is is was founded to provide assistance to families or individuals who have made you know contributions to science, uh, you know, medicine without actually being able to take advantage of of those advancements. Mm -hmm uh themselves and and so uh it's it's largely 
funded by the one, the only Re- Rebecca Skloot, who's the author of the book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Um, but, you know, it, in addition to just providing this type of funding for these individuals, uh, you know, s- several members of the Lacks family have also received help from the foundation, uh, including things such as you know, college funding, f- things for uh, med- medical pr- procedures that they wouldn't normally be able to receive. Um, and I think it's just some examples of, of the impact that the foundation has had today. Mm-hmm. Which is great because someone was like, hey, I, I'm assuming, especially the way they portrayed in the movie, is that like while she's researching all this and getting to know the family, she starts to realize like, wow, like this family really does not have any. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they're just not yeah. informed on what's going on with this stuff. And yeah. People, other people are profiting off of this, and they should too, if other people are. So, absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, we yep. talked about this earlier on the episode, but it's that nuance. Like, consent is obviously important in everything, and you know, people talk about it all the time. But informed consent is also very important. If you know everything that's going into something, you can be informed and you can give consent to something in a way that is meaningfully eth- meaningfully ethical. That's why when you mm-hmm. are prescribed medication now. They give you a long list of shit that can happen to you because you need to know, yeah, okay, you could take right. this allergy medicine and, you know, right. uh, 0.002% of the population who's taking this a- allergy medicine gets anal bleeding and dies. Like that's important shit because someone might be able to look at that and be like, nah, no, I'll just sneeze. No, nah, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, well, guys, uh. I guess – I don't know. Do you have any last things you want to say before we rate the movie? Yeah. I mean, I think one thing I want to say is that this is this is a starting point of this discussion. You know, it's it's just to continue the conversation and keep moving forward. I, I think that the thing that everyone can do, uh, you know, you, no matter your sort of position in, in this whole sort of, um, you know, sequence of events in, in, in our country is just to Learn more about history and, and current policies and systems that you might not be aware of, haven't been exposed to because of your education, upbringing, privilege, and biases, um, to just have a better appreciation for for the for all the ground that still has to be made um, regarding this topic. So this is not an all-inclusive discussion that we just had. It's just a starting point. Yep. Yeah, I agree. For sure. I agree. All right. All right. Well, then on that note, <laughs> let's rate this movie. It's time. Who wants to go first? I feel like I'm going to go first. I don't think I go first that much because I'm usually loud and telling someone else. You should go first. Yeah. Um, Science is movie. Five out of five because all the science. Well, actually here, the way the science was conducted in this movie, because it's a documentary, I'm going to give it a one out of five. Uh, the way, all right, because it was very unethical. Uh, the science accuracy in this movie, five out of five, because everything right. that happened happened. Kenan, I did want to say with this movie, the first thing I said when I saw there's like a montage of scientists just doing mm-hmm. shit in the beginning for the credits. They pull a thing of cells out of a liquid nitrogen doer, yeah. and it's like an actual scientist just pulling out actual cells from liquid yeah. nitrogen. And it's my first thought was that is the most realistic yeah. thing yes. I've ever seen yes, in any absolutely. of these fucking movies. Because every yeah. time people have some weird ass futuristic contraption to freeze shit and nothing's actually frozen, I was like, oh, look, 
an actual liquid nitrogen do. And the exact yeah. same thing happens yeah. at the end of the movie where the person who is pulling the HeLa cells out yeah. to show to the Wax family and to Rebecca Skloot is like, it, it actually is liquid nitrogen or at least looks like it. It's actually cold and he's wearing personal protective equipment to do it. Yeah. And yeah. you're like, oh man, this is so yeah. good. I will say um, there's yeah. a part near the beginning of the movie where you see somebody pipetting and it looks like uh, they needed to spend a little bit more time in their undergraduate lab learning how to pipette because it was uh, willy-nilly. A little bit of lazy pipetting I saw. Holy nilly. Oh, okay. Mm. <laughs> tisk, tisk. Uh, well, I guess. Entertainment? Uh, five out of five. I, mean, I, I, I thought it was really good. I think there was. So I'm, I'm not going to get too much into it, but I wanted to give a small critique. Uh, I think the movie did an okay, what, uh, an okay job with this. But one thing that kind of struck me at the beginning of the film is that it feels like for a, a while that there is a kind of like um, like novelization of the Lax family and how they act um, in contrast to the how Rebecca Skloot is played in a way that f- made me uncomfortable um, because it's kind of like early on her interactions with them it's very much portrayed as like, uh, whoa, this is so wild and it's not what I'm used to in a way that actually is like it. Like, I think in a vacuum, kind of mm. classist and kind of a little racist. But the movie did a good job of by the end of the film, although they didn't really verbalize that change of Rebecca, like obviously becoming very comfortable around these people. And so, like, I kind of in my brain was like, all right, well, I can see, like, some of the, again, this is a work of fiction about real life, but uh, some of the, like, mental biases that Rebecca Skloot might have had while interacting with these people very early on seem to have been overcome. And she's applied those into, like, treating people like people. For sure. Um, It was just something that I noticed. And the reason I bring it up is because there was, like, this big thing with the Lax family uh, when the movie first came out where some of them weren't happy about the way that they were portrayed in the film. Um, Mm. Exactly in the way that I've described. So that's my, like, one critique of this movie. Otherwise, I thought it was a very good movie. I'm glad you brought that up, Kenan, because... I did kind of think that in the beginning I was like they're I don't know if they're like really intentionally trying to make the audience feel this disparity between Rebecca and the family but I was like they're doing it in a way that kind of like portrays the family as a like a little quirky you know like and I was like I don't know if this is actually how the family is or if this is their way of trying to make a delineation between the way Rebecca is and the way the family is but either way. I'm going to give uh, Kenan. I'm just going to go with the same ratings as you. I think that the science in the movie was honestly like pretty good as far as like accuracy and also very unethical. Um, <laughs> and the entertainment, I was going to give it a four out of five. Like I thought it was really good. You should definitely watch it. It was definitely more of a, it was more about the family, which is what it was supposed to be about. Right. It's supposed to be about the people, not the HeLa cells. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a good movie and it's a good look at, you know, some of the issues this family is dealing with trying to uncover the history of what happened. Yeah. Four out of five. Definitely watch it. All right. Pace. What about you? Thank you, Sean. I, I have a similar thoughts in regards to the overall, I'll, I'll just call it not even scientific rating, the scientific, you know, aspects of, of this movie and the, you know, the unethical way in which the science was conducted you know 70 years ago um but but then the few scientific scenes in which we actually were were shown 
uh, in within the laboratories handling the Hilo cells were boringly accurate, which is what we love to see on this <laughs> we show. Love to see so, it. Um, <laughs> so five out of five there. Um, for the entertainment, I'm gonna give it a strong. I'm gonna go the ten point scale. I'm gonna give it a strong <gasps> nine out of ten. I, I, um, I know. Pace, I love you. I betrayal. Uh, I. <laughs> I really enjoyed the film. I was, I think I'm just, maybe I'm just in an emotional state. I don't know, but I was really emotionally touched by the movie. Um, and in ways that I wasn't expected, I wasn't expecting to be emotionally touched. So I think, uh, Ken and you alluded to this scene earlier, but whenever they're, uh, the Lax family and Re- Rebecca Sklood is in the lab, um, they're being shown the HeLa cells um, and, and importantly, the sort of fluorescent image of, of the HeLa cells. And they kind of have this really touching moment where they're, uh, they, they feel kind of this connection to their mother uh, in, in being kind of just shown in, in the light of how those cells are glowing. And that, that made me think about the day-to-day of being a scientist in a, a really unique way. I know we're, we're not always working with HeLa cells, and we're not always working with this donor cell, not, not even a donor cell line, a cell line that was... It was taken without consent uh, from someone with someone with cancer. Uh, but I think it's important to to, especially for bench scientists in the day to day, to continue to remind themselves uh, of the personal and and emotional and familial impact that their work can have. It's, it's easy to get blinded to that and desensitized to that whenever you're stuck in the lab on the day to day. So yeah, different people experience these in different ways. So mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. hell yeah. All right. Well, we have a question on this. Uh, oh, wait, really? We have a question, yes. We have a question from uh, Bartholomew Hoffman, uh, one at Dented uh, Car Door on Twitter. Um, and he asks us, is there any correlation between HeLa cells and stem cells? How are they used simil- similarly or differently in science and medicine? Hmm. Good question, Bart. Um, so... Our, our resident stem cell cells? biologist begins speaking. <laughs> so one of the big uh, differentiating factors of a stem Good cell joke. is just that. It's the ability nice. of the cell to differentiate into a new type of cell. Meaning like you can start with a stem cell and it can turn into an eye cell or a skin cell or a liver cell or a kidney cell or something like that. When you have a tumor cell these cells are not capable of changing into a different cell type. They have become like a new cell type all on their own, which is a tumor cell. Mm -hmm. So that process is not really reversible because like, well, one of the reasons this is not reversible is like a stem cell is in a state where it divides all the time and it grows, but it's regulated. When you have a cancer cell, cancer cells are completely off the rails they are not it's not like an inherent biological process for this cell to go haywire so one of the consequences is that the cell acquires a ton of mutations so its genes get all messed up and as it keeps dividing and what this leads to is you get a cell that's just sort of out of control which makes it unable to go back to a controlled state so they are similar in the sense that they both are capable of dividing a lot, but not in the sense that they can differentiate into other cells. Yeah, and I think it's also important to to note, too, that, like, HeLa cells are one aspect, like, they're one cell type, 
that has become what we refer to as immortalized, as Sean mentioned, um, in, in effect because they became cancerous. Um, but there's also other cell types, so like kidney cells, liver cells, you know, what have you, uh, that have been immortalized either by natural isolation because they've occurred in a type of cancer or they've actually been purposefully made immortal through viral dysregulation, mm-hmm. artificial expression, things like that, um, that allow you to study a specific cell type indefinitely without it having to die, right? You don't have to use primary cells. But you also have to make the consideration that these cells have been changed significantly from what they used to be because you've had to make them effectively immortal by changing their their genome. Right, which is honestly what most cell lines, if they're not cancer-derived cell lines, they are generally immortalized with viruses or something like that, or they have different genes turned on or off intentionally to try and make them divide. Um, Right. I think a couple a couple other things worth mentioning on the on this question is just the, like the therapeutically how these these two types of cells are utilized. So, for example, you know these immortalized cell lines are almost exclusively used for conducting experiments. You know, testing different types of drugs in a in a in a massive scale uh, and scope um, in order to keep that variable consistent and to be able to do it in a cheap way outside of a living organism. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas, whereas stem cells, you know, people are trying to harness the what they call the kind of it's the uh, pro, the progenitor properties of stem cells actually to to cure disease. So, for example, in neurodegenerative diseases, you know, like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, uh, there have been efforts to actually inject stem cells into areas of the brain that have been dying in order to restore these cells that have that have been killed uh, to, and to restore brain function in those regions to help improve symptoms. Um, so I think that's something else worth pointing out. Yeah, here. for sure. And kind of the thing that Pace is getting at too with this is that like stem cells can become different cell types depending on the types of signals that they receive. Um, and so when we're doing things like what Pace is saying, where you're injecting them into the brain in which there are areas of tissue that have been degraded. If these cells are introduced to these areas, they're going to be up against other, uh, uh, sitting next to basically other cells. They're going to be giving off different signals that these mm-hmm. cells can then recognize as, oh, I need to become this thing. Um, and then those can become neuronal cells and you can try and regenerate brain tissue. But you can also do this in a, in a laboratory setting kind of artificially uh, in order to study a specific cell type. So um, there's a technology that people are frequently using that's basically the exact same thing that uh, Pace is talking about uh, called iPSCs, which are induced pluripotent stem cells. Pluripotent meaning that they can become multiple different things and induced means we did that to them. Um, And what it allows you to do is take these cells and then actually give them those signals uh, without introducing them to pre-existing cell types and say, hey, become a neuron or like, hey, become a muscle cell. Uh, And then once you have those, right, you have a population of these iPSCs, you can then get access to a bunch of different other cell types in order to do your experiments. Um, which allows you to do things that you wouldn't have been able to do before. You can just get a new cell type or a very specific type of cell uh, and study that. So thanks for the question. Yeah, thanks. That one was fun to Thank answer. You, Thank you, Bart. Yeah, that was a good question. Yeah. So uh, should we... Uh, so what are we watching next, Kevin? Uh, oh, <laughs> we should uh, talk about the elephant in the room, huh, boys? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So yeah, I can I can get us started if you want. Yeah. Why don't you lead us off, Sean? All right. So uh, this episode of the Real Science Cast, which episode? What, what's the number? Is this like sixty nine, dude? No, nah, um, we were joking about that, but I feel like it's sixty three. I something. think it's sixty three. Yeah. Um, this is going to be the last canonical episode of the Real Science Cast. Dun, 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 dun. Um, it is. Yeah, and so we have talked about this a lot. Obviously, we've been doing this show for over two years, and the three of us have talked about it a lot. And one of the main reasons we're we're planning on stopping the show is it's just it, it's we're in different places than we are now. Sorry, we are in different places now than we were when we started the show. Correct. And the amount of time and effort that goes into making the show good quality is difficult to come by. And rather than let the quality of the show slip or continue to slip, we have decided that we're going to take a indefinite hiatus from the podcast. Yeah, I, I think it's important that like, like Sean is saying that this is a combination of a bunch of different factors. It's us wanting to be able to make sure that every episode is very, very good. Um, it's also, uh, you know, granted there's a lot of movies out there, but we're, we're scraping the bottom of the barrel in some cases. Um, yeah, for sure. In, in regards to like actual good science to talk about. Um, and I think like a lot of those things make it feel like, especially for us, the podcast or this iteration, this podcast is how it exists now. Uh, has kind of reached its natural conclusion. We've had a great time doing it, obviously, uh, but we are kind of ready to pursue something different. So We want to do something else. Yeah, yeah. we want to do something else. And this is not to say that, like... So, again, we're ending this show. This is not to say that we won't do another podcast. We may. It may be science-related. It may not be science-related, or we may never get around to it. To be honest, we... You know, this was our first time making a podcast. We learned a lot, and um, we're probably just gonna talk. Oh God, my headphones are dying. We're, <laughs> we're just gonna talk <laughs> nice. with each other and see what we want to do, and for sure, yeah, and take yeah. it one day at a time. I, I think it's worth it's worth just thanking everyone who has listened to the show, asked questions, engaged yeah. with the content, and and you know, and given us great feedback. You know that and how they looked forward to it being released every two weeks and and the joy that it gives them so we're very very thankful to those and for those people who actually gave us their actual money and became yeah. patrons uh to help sustain the show that was uh something that we really sincerely appreciated yeah, yeah. i honestly can't thank you guys enough um for that type of support but it's especially great to go back and like you know we looked at the patreon and we talked about it um and you guys for i think probably about two years have made us uh at least be able to break even for the most part for this podcast which is really great um and that's 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 a good feeling um because it means you know you cared enough to like keep it going and help us keep it going yeah we like I can't even describe to you how much we appreciate your guys one donations and two just the listenership of everybody. It was extremely cool to be talking with, you know, Kenan and Pace and being like, Oh, we got a question from someone. Do you know who this person is? And realizing that no, we've never met this person. They just yeah. like the show. It yeah. was a fantastic feeling and we can't tell you guys enough how happy we are that we had so many listeners and um we really appreciate all of you. It's also worth repeating that, like, we'll all continue to post on our own social media feeds and, mm -hmm. you know, keep, keep, uh, okay, right, Sean, my bad. <laughs> Pace and I will continue to post on the internet. Uh, but, um, 
you know, we'll also, whenever we move on to our next project, whatever that looks like, we'll post in the Real Science Cast feeds. Um, and you'll, you know, hear it from us. Maybe we'll even just throw in a, throw in a short audio clip uh, right back into this exact feed so you can hear what we're going to do next. Yeah. Um, and again, on that point, the episodes, we're not going to like delete them or anything. They'll still be available, obviously, if you ever want to listen to them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we're just ready for something different. So It really agreed. sucks that your dad's never going to talk to you again after he hears this. <laughs> oh, no. We'll, we'll, I'll call him and we won't even know what to start talking about because <laughs> we'll be talking about the podcast. Um, oh, God. Yeah. All right. Well. Thank you guys very much. Yeah, seriously. Thank you to everybody. And yeah. Yeah. Thank you to Jenny also for designing our logo and everything. That was great. Mm-hmm. And, and Otis McDonald. You, Otis McDonald is Otis never going to know. Oh, he's the, never going to know. Pro. I'm so I he's he's had such an influence on our podcast opening and ending. <laughs> Every time, consistently. Seriously. All right, sweet. Well, thank you guys very much. I'm not saying goodbye to you guys because we're going to keep hanging out. Yeah, but, we're uh, still going to keep hanging out, but goodbye to, to everyone else. For yeah, now. Thank, thank you guys for doing this thing with me. I'm, I love all of you. My name's Ken Smith. My name is Sean Crossan. And I'm Michael Pace. And guys, you got to remember, mm-hmm. you don't need good science to make a good movie. This has been the Real Science Cast. Ding 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 ding. Why do we even use Otis when we can use your guys' great outros? <laughs> <laughs>